Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. NADOC week was the 8th to the 15th of July 2019. This week on Accent of Women, we bring you the voices of Aboriginal women in struggle. In the second part of the show, we play an excerpt from a public meeting held at Victoria's Trades Hall. The public meeting was called Fighting for Black Issues in a White Democracy. But first up on the show, the landmark announcement about the stolen wages settlement in Queensland. A class action on behalf of an estimated 10,000 Aboriginal workers in Queensland who had their wages stolen last century has been settled with the state government for approximately $190 million. For decades leading up to the 1970s, the wages of Aboriginal workers in Queensland were not paid directly to them but to the state under so-called Protection Acts. But about 60% of those involved in this historic case have since passed on. So what does that mean for Aboriginal justice and the repayment of stolen wages? I had the opportunity to speak with one of the claimants, Colleen Hurley, and she joins me on the show. Well, I come from Sherberg. My name's Colleen Hurley. Um, I was ma- um, my maiden name is Kirk. Uh, and yeah, I was... Um I was sent out to work when I was only about 13 from Sherberg and uh, taken to a, uh, sent to a property and uh, worked there for five years. Um, yeah, and so it was just uh, I've been claiming ever since um, since I knew that there was a you know um, money that was being paid out to everybody that was working and didn't get their wages. So this week, the uh, Queensland government announced a, a landmark uh, offer or payout to claimants of the stolen wages. I mean, one of the things about that is many, many claimants have since passed away. So in some respects, it's a very, very late offer, but also good news for some people. Tell me about the offer that is being made by the Queensland government. Well, I think it's a long time coming. I think, you know, uh, people like my parents and my father that that worked for his um, life that never been recognised. But I think it's a good thing that they should be recognised for the work that they did, you know, um, and they should have got paid for it. Um, In 2006, I think it was, there was an offer put by the Queensland government that they were going to pay $2,500 to people that uh, were born after a certain period and had wages stolen and $4,000 for people um, who were born before that time. And by and large, that offer was rejected by Aboriginal claimants in Queensland. Were you uh, involved in the campaign at that time? Yes, I was, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what happened then. Well, um, I, I can't remember back exactly what happened, but, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, issues around that money that was coming through and, and uh, a lot of the people that I knew that was all on, the, on, the, on the board going to all the meetings didn't, didn't get a say in. Or We knew very well that there wasn't going to happen, you know, that there wasn't going to be a money that we were going to be paid for all the wages and it was disappointing that... Uh, 
nothing happened on that occasion. So quite a number of people stuck to their guns, didn't accept the offer and kept fighting. Is this offer better? This is a much better offer, yeah. We we just hope that it'll 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 eventuate that something will come out of it. Uh, but you know, there's there's um, there's a lot of people out there. Like I was at Musgrove Park today, and there's a lot of people still thinking that they still won't get it. They won't get nothing, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, that there's sort of a like you know because they've been promised so many times that. Um, they still don't believe that they're going to get anything. You know? Are you able to tell us the details of the offer? Uh, well, as far as I know, I've only heard that uh, what was written in the paper. You know, um, but I don't. I don't know how many. You know, uh, has applied for it or or what. I, I don't know any details about it at all. I just heard on the in the papers. I just read in the papers the other day. Isn't it amazing that you're one of the claimants and while the Queensland government has made all of this um, public announcements about how historic and landmark this offer is, people like you don't even know the details of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite true. It's just, just that, you know, as, as the years go on, you just sort of forget all about it, you know, on how you worked and everything because... You know the government promised Indigenous people a lot of stuff, and it never it never eventuates with nothing. So we just go along and just say, "Oh well, that happened years ago. Forget it about it now." You know. So. So I wanted to ask you then, when you were thirteen years old and you went out to work, can you tell us what? Tell us some of the detail of that. Well, uh, what happened was that uh, my mother died when I was 11 years old, and then after that, um, my father remarried again. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many years after my mum died, but he remarried again, and I was told that uh, now that my father's no longer responsible for me, that he is responsible for his second wife and, and her children that she had before him, that I had to go out and earn my own living. So that's basically what happened. Uh, I went out and, and uh, worked on the station. Um, and and I looked after children, you know. Um, six there was about six children in the family, and I did everything. I I um, was on the job at six o'clock in the morning, and I'd sometime I didn't get to bed till after eight o'clock at night, because I had to do the household, the washing, the cooking, the looking after the children. Sometimes I even went out and mustered sheep. So yeah, so it was a full-on job, um, you know, for the whole time that I was there. Yeah. How much were you told you were going to be paid? Well, I was supposed to be getting three pounds in those days, three pounds. Uh, but um, and and I used to sign for it because my the people that I worked for they made me sign for it. And they also in those days you had to put a stamp on your your payment sort of thing. They they'd put a little stamp on on the, on the forms that you had to fill out. And and I was led to believe that all that money went back to the Aboriginal department in, in Sherberg went back to, to Sherberg. But um, but whenever I went back home, I, I mean, I, there was not a lot of time that I did go back home, but there, on one occasion I did go back home to see my uh, eldest sister and her family, and um, there was no money there. There was nothing there because she wanted to get me some, you know, like private, um, you know, clothing and stuff like that, toiletries and stuff, and she couldn't um, couldn't get it for me. So, yeah, but uh, but that's what happened, yeah. And that lasted five years? Yep. And then what happened after that? What did you do? Did you uh, go out and get another job and, and this time you were paid all of the money? 
Uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, I, I left the property. I, I left the place and I came to Brisbane because uh, my older sister was taking care of um, my other other si- sisters and brothers. She ended up taking them off the mission too because there was two younger um, siblings after me and she ended up bringing them down to Brisbane. And so she ended up uh, writing to me and letting me know that um, she had uh, got a flat down here in Brisbane and I ended up leaving there and coming down here and staying with her with my other two uh, sister and brother. And then I ended up getting housekeeping jobs here, uh, you know, she, because she was a housekeeper too for some people down here and uh, we were still under the Act, so we still had to um, do what the department told us to do. So uh, we were just geared, that's all we were trained for, on how to do housekeeping and look after families and stuff like that. So we did that until... Um, until uh, we were not eligible to be in the department, and we were, we had to toe the line because we were still under the um, Naval Affairs Department. Tell so me. At any time, we, yeah, at any time we can still be um, be arrested if we were out of place in in, in Brisbane, and um, we could be sent back to Sherbrooke. Yeah. Tell me about the Act, and other than. Um taking part of your wages away, what else did the Act allow for and what was life like living under it? Oh, it was terrible. Um, uh, You know, I mean, you you couldn't do anything unless they had the approval of whatever you had to do. You couldn't couldn't go uh, out of Brisbane. You had to get permission. If you wanted money or anything, you know, you're supposed to ask them for, for some money to go anywhere. Uh, they paid your way, and um, you weren't allowed to even mix with people that you weren't supposed to be mixing with people. You know, um, I mean, you, you they, they kept a watch on you wherever you went, whatever you did, and um, yeah, the department did, and um, they made you uh, do your work, and and that's all you had to do. So you you weren't allowed to do anything. You weren't you weren't able to do whatever you wanted to do. You know, so it was very very strict. Very strict ruling, um, yeah. When was the Act abolished and were you involved in any of the activism that led to the abolition of that Act? Oh, well, we used to march all the time, you know. We in, in the 60s, we did all the marching and all that type of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I, I didn't do nothing much because I, I wasn't really... Um, I'm not a person that sort of... Uh, you know, I like to march and do a lot of acting type of thing. My father told me to be a very quiet person. You know, he was always a quiet person. So we never sort of no, mucked the system. We just did what we were told. And, um, yeah, so we didn't, uh, I didn't do much much of that. I mean, I mixed with a lot of people that did march and all that. And, and whenever they marched for their rights, they a lot of people got arrested. So, yeah, I didn't... Uh, it was it was a very strange sort of uh, era, you know. I mean, uh, because you was under those rules for so many years, you weren't allowed, you know. I mean, like the lights used to go out in your house at home, and you know, you used to turn on kerosene lights and all that, and, and you know, you didn't get you didn't get proper food on, in the rations and and all that type of stuff. You got flour and tea and sugar. It all depended on how many people that was in your family and and things like that. So you were rationed out, you know on certain things. My mother wasn't allowed to go and shop unless she 
she was allowed to shop for certain things, you know, and uh, if she went over the budget of what they allowed, she didn't, she wasn't allowed to take the articles if she were buying clothes, for instance, you know. So it was very, uh, very strict rules um, on, the, on the mission and stuff like that, yeah. So you've been going to some meetings where other claimants are talking and discussing the offer and you yes. did... You mentioned earlier that some people are a little bit resigned um, and sceptical about the offer that's been made. But in general, what is the um, what is the nature of the discussion amongst uh, claimants uh, in, in relation to whether whether there's something to look forward to or if the struggle must continue? Well, if nothing comes of it, the struggle will still continue. It'll still go on because um, everybody thinks that, well, you know, well, I'm entitled to... I worked out there for five years, and, and um, you know, if I didn't get any, any pay working for nothing for five years, I'm entitled to something. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have passed on, and, you know, and a lot of people worrying about, you know, whether their relatives are going to get... they're going to get something from their relatives that they, they get... And, and that's what they're fighting for you know, to be recognised as Indigenous people and to recognise all the work that they've done. You know, I mean, you don't see a white person going to work and not earning any money, you know. Well, what, so, what strikes me so much about this is, you know, in the stereotypes and the... Um, the, the diminishing um, ideas about Aboriginal people. One of them is this idea that, uh, you know, Aboriginal people are lazy and don't like to work when, in fact, the history tells us quite a different story, that, in fact, mm. hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal people went out to work and did not and, and had their wages stolen from them and fought for the right to work and fought for the right to be paid adequate wages I you know and then when we tell the story of you know the the conditions in which Aboriginal people you know are, are forced to live I think this part of the history must be told alongside it mm, yeah exactly yeah yeah well that thing about you know Aboriginal people are lazy I mean my father worked all his life you know he, he never he never stopped working I mean he used to ride a bike eight miles from Mergen to uh, from Sherberg all the way out to Wondai to work every every day and and you know I mean he wasn't he was never lazy and he ever never taught us to be lazy he always said to us you know you go and work and you do your best and he says if I ever catch you here that you were stealing or you you didn't do your work to your best of your abilities he said I'll deal with you when you come home you know so he said just behave yourself and do what they tell you to do otherwise you get locked up you you, you just get you know, you get downed on by the department. You get, you know, yeah. I mean, my brother used to was working on the station. He used to be a stockman and, and he ran away and they brought him back and put him in jail. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. This week's Accent of Women features the voices and struggles of Aboriginal women in recognition of NAIDOC Week. Next up, an excerpt from a public meeting held at Victoria's Trades Hall. The public meeting was called Fighting for Black Issues in a White Democracy. The voices you'll hear are those of Edie Shepherd, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser at Victoria Trades Hall, Lara Watson, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser for the ACTU, and Sharina Clanton.
Sharina starts off this section by introducing herself. Hi, my name is Sharina Clanton. I'm a proud Wangatha Yamiji and Noongar Kitcha woman from Wajak Noongar Buja. Um, I'm also a Baladong Noongar Yorkat, so Wajak Noongar Buja is Perth. <laughs> um, I'm actually related to all the garlets, so um, when I was saying, hey, you're mob, and we found out, and it was like, I am a Yaren, I am a garlet, hey! <laughs> um, Forever finding new cousins, it's wild. <laughs> Um, and yeah, just honoured to be here. So thank you all for coming and sitting in and listening and leaning into the discomfort and the unknowing and and uh, allowing yourself to have courageous conversations and to see. Uh, I, I kind of get a bit exhausted by the panel format where it doesn't implement in terms of a ripple effect um, within a brighter. A wider discourse, not only in ourselves, in our community, but within the government structures that we're operating in. And so I'm hoping that that shifts a little bit in its axis tonight. So thank you. How can we have these conversations about how to better our movement, how to expand our horizons, expand the way that we view things, expand how we campaign and all of that sort of stuff uh, in meaningful ways without placing that additional burden on those who are already carrying so much of that load? I think, firstly, there's nothing to fix. You know, the way that we campaign may be um, different to the way you campaign, but at the end of the day, every style is needed. So whether you're within the system and you're lobbying government for change or you're actually on the streets rallying and closing down, you know, cities and traffic. Every campaign is needed for change. So I think we need to have the conversation. If we're being asked to fix something, we need to be having the conversation around culture, country, protocol, um, and talking in regards to culturally safe spaces, particularly if they want to be involved in our campaigns um, and the way that we campaign. We often talk about emotional labour and how I actually experienced a burnout, to be honest. I went through my own period where I got really tired not tired of fighting, but tired of the same rhetoric and systems and, the, and nothing had shifted. And what I felt I had done in the last 10 years made little effort. Um, people go, yes, but one small drop, it makes a wave. I was just like, just shut up. Because um, <laughs> it, it, let me tell you, every day when you're dealing with systemic racism, every day when you are profiled because of your blackness, and I'm not talking, that's another conversation, is, a, is when you identify as black in this country, you will experience racism, let alone the colorism. So let alone the colorism that exists, because I have, do have lighter skin than my sisters, and they are profiled even more so than me. One is actually about to graduate as a doctor, and still, and still, and told actually in year 11 and 12 that she's not smart enough to sit her TE. She now will have two degrees. Wow. So when... I see my... I, the thing is, you have to go back to um, our grandmothers and our grandfathers who were staunch activists throughout the 50s and 60s. 
My grandmother was one of the first Aboriginal women to set up um, Munyalady program, and the Munyalady program, as a, the first nurse in Western Australia, she grew up on the reservation where you had to get a permission slip from the native welfare officer in order to leave the reservation to go into town to get yourself an education. Now, my great-grandmother, Mary Malcolm, was good friends with Neen Gare, who was the native welfare officer's wife, who stole the story, The Fringe Dwellers. Trilby, the central character, is my grandmother's middle name. So, yeah, let's not talk about another conversation about stealing our stories. Um... So when my grandmother became the first Aboriginal nurse in Western Australia, she was adamant that education was a golden key that unlocked many doors. I'll say it again. Education is a golden key that unlocks many doors. Grandpa was exactly the same. Without the education of her nursing degree, my mum then and my uh, grandfather being the first law court officer in Western Australia as a Noongar man, my, that potentially would not have set up for my mother to become the first Indigenous female state prosecutor in Western Australia, to then go on and get her honours and then masters and then qualify for her PhD. That then created a ripple effect in my household where I, as a single mother, mind you, 31, homeless, Yes, we lived out of black garbage bags. No, I do not have economic privilege. Yes, I understand there are different tiers of privilege in terms of education. And I understand that there is a particular privilege that I have because I've had access to education. Not, not everybody has. But we fought for it. And we were also adamant that without it, we wouldn't have been making the kind of changes that we wanted to see now. Now, my mother fought on the streets. She was, she was the template and blueprint for my own activism. And then I said, Mum, why don't I see you at marches anymore? She goes, Sharina, how do you eat an elephant? I was like, you can't eat an elephant. Like, she's, she's talking about a metaphor. Like, <laughs> um, and she goes, one bit at a time. And that's true. And I said, Mum, don't you find it exhausting? She goes, but if I don't keep up the fight, I'm, I'm, putting on, I'm placing the stepping stones down for you to eventually continue that legacy and it's your job and it's incumbent upon you that when you get to a position of power or privilege or opportunity that you extend your hand so that you help other fellows reach the same level as you. I then realised that you've got to have self-care because then in my own journey and my own journey is different my own journey does not speak for every Aboriginal woman or every Aboriginal person. It's my own unique experience. But what I can relate to is that we are often burned out. We are exhausted. We are doing multiple jobs within our community, within our homes, within our roles, um, in various government organisations, in non-for-profit, um, whether they're recognisable positions or not is to decolonise not only ourselves but the system itself. And then on top of it, we're educating you, which we shouldn't have to, but we are because we're wanting you to learn. So we're talking constantly, we're telling you about deep listening. And we're not just talking about listening and you're engaged, we're talking about a deeper listening in terms of a cultural understanding and the nuances required about 
Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous being, Indigenous ways of life. And so uh, that burnout phase uh, was a real learning journey about how, how, one, I couldn't do it all, two, that I needed to have a support system for my own mental health and emotional well-being, and two, I had to, three, I had to, beyond anything, I had to look after my spirit. And that often the people, usually non-Indigenous organisations or non-Indigenous media, often go to that one Aboriginal person as a voice for everything and that they're the expert. And no one is actually an expert. Even our elders are constantly learning. So often we try to educate ourselves very, 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 very quickly within your systems and we talk about the things that need to be changed and then we talk about the various solutions that you can potentially implement and they go, oh, no, thank you very much for your recommendations and don't implement them. That's the cycle that happens again and again and again. And what I grew tired of was these panels and these uh, forums that had invited Aboriginal peoples to the stage or invited us in terms of having the microphone but did little to implement target-based initiatives and hold their own selves to account. So I think, like, burnout is a really big thing. Mental health is a huge high rate of depression and suicide within our communities that no one's addressing. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, pressures, not only if you're in terms of an air, urban landscape, but also with our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are living semi-traditionally and trying to maintain old ancient ways too. And then there's a consciousness where we have to have a double consciousness of being Indigenous and then understanding a colonial framework and colonial thinking. So that's exhausting. Then beyond that, we're often unpacking your racism and your fragility and your rage to then sit with you in a polite conversation with nice tone to help semi-educate you to a point where you might want to engage in some difficult content. Then from that point, we're starting with truth. And from that point, we then are challenging everything that you've been brought up with in terms of Indigenous histories, black massacres, genocide. You have to understand that genocide was happening up until the late 50s. It's still happening now, just in a different way. That was Sharina Clanton, Lara Watson and Edie Shepherd concluding the Fighting for Black Issues in a White Democracy excerpt. Before her, Colleen Hurley, a stolen wages claimant. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.